Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. So we were discussing the different levels of unity. The whole, this whole section of the Tanya is based on understanding the idea of unity. The unity of God. As the Zohar says, that there are two levels of unity. Obviously, when we talk about the unity of God, one of the 13 principles of faith that a Jew has to believe in the unity of God, if it means that we believe it's only one God and not two gods, what can the Zohar, how can the Zohar talk about two different levels of unity? There's only one unity. God is one. There's no higher level of unity. There's no lower level of unity. But based on what his explanation earlier, that the meaning of the unity of God is that all of creation is nothing before God, is nullified before God. Its existence is nullified, as if it doesn't exist. In other words, there's no sense of ego, there's no sense of I, there's no sense of consciousness. It's, it's there, but it's, it doesn't exist. And the more it is nullified, the more it is totally unified with God. Because in order to be unified with God, if there is an I, it's already a contradiction to God. If there's an ego... If there's anything outside of God, it's already a contradiction to God because the reality is that there's no other reality but God. So the more the sense, the greater the sense of godliness, the less the sense of ego or independence or separation from God. And therefore, the less the sense of self, the less the sense of ego, the greater the unification with God. And therefore, the Zohar talks about two levels of unity. There's a higher level of unity and there's a lower level of unity. And here he discussed two levels of unity, but in addition, there's an, another two levels of unity. So altogether, you have four different levels of unity. The highest level of unity is, as discussed elsewhere in Hasidic discussion and philosophy, Hasidic discourses, is the unity that comes from the name Hashem, God's essential name. Yud, Ke, Vav, Ke, the four-letter name. Yud, Ke, Vav, Ke. And the unity on that level is that the recognition that just that it, the created is entirely dependent on its source, on God. It has no independent reality. It does not exist on its own. It cannot even continue to exist, even for one moment on its own. It must constantly and continuously, it is totally and entirely dependent on, on the creator, on the creative force, the creative energy that's creating it. And the moment the creative energy ceases, it ceases to exist. So it has nothing on its own. Everything it has is directly and totally, entirely from its divine creative source. And the analogy he used is like the light of the sun, just like the light of the sun. When the sun goes down, there's no light. The light doesn't exist for a moment without the sun. Because the light is entirely dependent on the sun. The light has no independent existence other than the sun. It's not like the sun creates a light and the light wanders off on its own. The light is con- constantly connected to its source and is totally dependent on its source. And everything the light has is from its source. The light has nothing on its own. And when you look at the light, it points to the sun. And that is the light that we see, the light that's outside of the sun. So although the rays of the sun and the light of the sun is totally dependent on its source and has nothing other than its source and it points to its source, but nevertheless, 
the light of the sun, the rays of the sun exist outside of the sun. There's the sun, the body, the orb of the sun. And then you have outside of the sun, you have the light of the sun, the heat of the sun. So it's a dependent reality, but it's a reality that's separate and outside of its source. Connecting, connected to its source, absorbed to its source. But it's still reality outside of its source. But the sun, you can't give what you don't have. If the sun can give light, surely the sun possesses light. If the sun would not possess light, the potential to give off light, the sun could not give off light. Because it's the sun that's giving off the light. So the light is contained within the sun. But within the sun, it's as if the light doesn't exist. The light doesn't sense itself. All that the light in the sun senses is the sun. Because all the light is, is nothing other than the sun. It has nothing else than, other than the sun. Everything it has is from the sun. So in, within the sun, all that is, is the orb, is the sun. The light within the sun is totally, you can't even discern it. You can't even, it doesn't even sense its own existence. It's there. It's not only it's there. It's there in a much stronger way than the light shining outside the sun. Because it's within the source. It's much more powerful. And yet, it, it's as if it doesn't exist. It's totally nullified within existence. So that's the meaning, and it's totally unified with its source. So the same is with the creatures that emanate from the name Hashem, from God's name, without any concealment, without any, any um, condensing, that come directly from the name Hashem, God's creative energy. We're on page uh, nine, 913, at the bottom of 913. That come from God's creative energy. These created beings don't sense themselves. There is no I. There is no separation. They are totally unified and nullified within the sun. It's like the, the body is totally nullified within to the soul. So they are totally unified and nullified to the source and totally, just like the body is unselfconscious, there's no ego. You don't sense yourself. You don't feel yourself. The body is totally unified, totally nullified. There's no ego, and therefore it is totally unified with the soul. It becomes totally one with the soul. This is the highest level of bitl. The highest level that's usually discussed in Hasidic philosophy It's called the higher level of unity, which really only exists in the world of emanation. This is the divine world, which is like a body to God, so to speak. We talk of God's personality, so to speak, the ten emanations. So although they are created, God creates wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, all of these things are created. God is not knowledge, and God is not wisdom, and God is not love. God is undefined. Although God creates all of these attributes, and to God it's just like He's creating a cup of water, it's all the same. But nevertheless, there's a difference. The divine attributes are become like a body to God. Because they are like the light of the sun within the sun. They sense, they don't sense themselves. They're totally nullified. Just like the body doesn't sense itself, it's totally unified with the soul. It becomes one and inseparable from the soul. So much so when you move your hand, who's moving your hand? It's not you, you, your soul is moving the hand. Who just moved? Your soul moved, not, not the physical. The hand becomes totally one and inseparable from, from the soul. That you just become an extension of the soul. So too, the divine attributes, the ten emanation, the spherot that the whole entire Kabbalah is based on, the ten spherot, these are the emanations that emanate from God, but they sense that they, all they are is God. They don't sense themselves. There's no ego, there's no separation. They are totally nullified. There's no I, there's no ego, there's no separation. There's no sep- Their entire being is totally dependent on God. All they, all they have, all they are is nothing other than God. And therefore... They are a reflection of God. Just like the light of the sun is a reflection of God, so too, 
the divine attributes become a, a reflection of God. We talk about God's wisdom, God's love, God's compassion, God's strength. So they become totally unified with God. They become attributes of God. Just like the light emanates from the sun and the light reflects the sun, so too the divine attributes are also godly. They're a reflection of God, so they are godly attributes. That's why, although it is, we talk of wisdom, and wisdom is a defined attribute, and God is undefined, but the, nevertheless, the divine wisdom is an infinite wisdom. We talk about love as a divine, divine attribute of love. Since it's God's attribute of love, it's an infinite love, infinite compassion, infinite strength, infinite royalty. Because this is like the light of the sun that's totally unified with the sun. So that is, in general, as discussed in Hasidic philosophy elsewhere, the highest level of Yehuda Ilah, the highest level of unity, where they become totally one with God and unified with God and reflection of God and a part of God. Because they're nothing other, they're nothing other than, than God. Then you have the general category that's discussed in general in Hasidus, which is the creation that results from the name Adonai, the way we pronounce Hashem's name. We don't pronounce Hashem's name as it is written. We're not allowed to pronounce Hashem's name the way it's written until Mashiach comes, because God is concealed. We pronounce Hashem's name, even when it's written, Yudke Vavke, we pronounce it Adonai, which means the Master, the Lord, the King which is the lowest of the ten divine attributes. And this is the source of all of creation. Because a king, as we explained, we learned the other week, a king, you can't be a king over yourself. To be a king, you need an outsider to anoint you as king. So this is the attribute that created a world of separation, a world of angels. Angels are holy beings, but they're separate. They're not God. They're not God. They're separate from God. Their substance is not God. They don't exist within the source. They're created, something from nothing. Especially the physical world, the material world. The earth, water, the whole physical world is something that popped out of nowhere. It's cre- creation, something from nothing. It doesn't exist in its source. So it is separate from God. Something that doesn't exist within the source. In other words, although everything is really nullified before God and everything is truly one with God, unified, God is one and everything is unified with God, but God forbid to say, it doesn't mean that this table is God. God forbid. If you bow down to this table, it's idolatry. Unified doesn't mean it's God. It's a created being. It's separate from God. God created something outside of himself, something separate from him, something that doesn't exist within God. God is not the potato. And a potato doesn't exist within God. A physical potato. God has the power to create something from nothing, something that doesn't exist within the source, something new, something unpredictable, something that's like a quantum leap. God has that power, that infinite ability to create something that has no precedent, that there's no logical reason that this should be, and yet it's here. That's creation. Creation is an illogical proposition. It's not like a logical sequence, one step forces the next step. It's an illogical proposition, something that shouldn't be and can't be 
and it's here. Out of, seemingly out of nowhere, something from nothing. No, unprecedented. A quantum leap from spirituality to take energy and transform it into matter. Take atoms and transform it into a cup, into a table. It's impossible. What's, what's the connection from atoms, which is extrasensory, which is spiritual, which is energy? How can energy turn into matter? This is the act of creation. God takes energy and transforms it into matter. It makes no sense. It's illogical. It's irrational. It's a quantum leap. There's no connection between the two. And yet God transforms energy into matter. That's the infinite divine ability that God has to create something from nothing. So yes, he's creating something that doesn't exist in its source, something that's unprecedented, something that there's no source for. There's no rhyme and no reason. But after God creates it, since it is entirely dependent on God, it cannot exist for one moment without the divine creative energy forcing it into existence. So it's like the light of the sun only in the sense that it's totally dependent on its source. Just like the light of the sun is dependent on its source, so too the created beings are entirely dependent on that divine creative energy and has no independent existence whatsoever. And everything it has is from its source. Therefore, it is totally nullified within the source and is truly unified with the source. But that's where the analogy breaks down. It's not like the light of the sun because the light of the sun actually reflects the sun. The, light, the sun is energy, and the light of the sun also emanates energy and heat and light. Yes, it's only a reflection, a glimmer, a ray of the sun. And to the sun, it makes no difference if there is light, there is no light. But nevertheless, the light of the sun is a reflection of the sun. You can't say the same about creation. God forbid to say that the angel is a, is a reflection of God, is God, is godly. If you bow down to an angel, it's idolatry. An angel is a created being. You're not allowed to bow down to an angel. So that, in that sense, we are not like the light. We're not a reflection of the source. We don't exist within the source. That's why we call creation something from nothing. Because to us, our, the, the divine energy, the divine is nothing because we can't comprehend it. We don't have the tools to comprehend it. You can't comprehend something that you don't have. Try explaining to a blind person who was born blind what, what, what the color yellow is or, or what sight is all about. It's impossible because he doesn't have it within him. If you don't have it within you, you can't explain it. We cannot comprehend godliness. We cannot comprehend the infinite because we, we are finite. Because we, we are not God. And we're not a reflection of God. We don't have it within us. That's not, our, that's not who we are. We are created. Something new. Something that doesn't exist within God. Something separate. But since we are entirely dependent on the source, and we cannot exist for one moment without the source, and the divine energy must constantly and continuously create us and recreate us each and every moment, and if the divine energy would cease to create us, we would revert back to our natural state, which is absolute nothingness, as if we never existed. Therefore, we are nothing other than the source. We are totally unified with the source. We are totally one with the source. So we say we are nullified to the source. Although we sense our egos and we sense our sense of self and we sense our independence, the truth is that we are totally nullified before the source and we are unified with the source. But not that we are the source. God forbid. We're not God. That would be pantheism. Idolatry. But we are totally nullified before the source and we're totally unified within the source. So where does creation come? 
Creation comes from the name Adnai. Because God wanted to be a king, and in order for God to be a king, there must be something that's separate from God, that's outside from God, that can have a relationship with God. You can't have a relationship with yourself. You can't marry yourself. You can't be a king over yourself. You can't be a king, a king over your own body. Your body is part of you, is you. You can't be king over yourself. You can't even be king over your children. Or even over ministers. To be kings, there has to be subjects who are separate from you. And there's a distance. There's a gap between the king who's sitting in his palace, who's remote from his people, and the subjects. And the subjects willingly subject themselves to the king and willingly enter into this relationship. So since God wanted to be king, therefore he created the world that's separate from him. He created angels and he created human beings who are separate from him. And when we make the choice and we willingly choose to have a relationship with God, we coronate, we crown God as king of the universe. So from that attribute of royalty, the world exists. You can't say the world is nothing. That we are a reflection of God and we are like the light of the sun within the sun. From that aspect, we are outside of the sun. We are outside of the source. And therefore, this is the source of, this is the lower level of unity. This is a level of unity in which we do exist. Our independence has meaning. And our distance from God has meaning. And there is time. And there is space. And there is a sense of self. And there is higher and there is lower. There are those who are closer to the king and those who are further from, the, further from the king. And we are measured by our relationship with the king. How much we nullify ourselves before the king and how much we are able to rise above our egos and how much we are able to get closer to the king. So this is the lower level of unity as discussed in general elsewhere in Hasidic philosophy. Which, so we have a level of unity that comes from the name Yudke Vavke. If you can pass the Tanya's on page 913 at the bottom. And then you have the level of unity which emanates from the name Adnai, where God already conceals himself and concentrates himself and contains himself and therefore creates a world which is divided and fragmented, a world which is pluralistic, a world which is finite, a world which is separate from God, a world that's defined by a sense of self and a sense of time and a sense of space. And that's the source of the world as we know it. That's our arena of operation. That's the world as we know it. Time, space, concept. This is, the, this is, the frame, this is our frame of reference. Our whole world evolves and exists within this time, space, continuum, and, and that's where we, we operate in this, in, this, um, in this continuum. And um, from that level, we can only achieve a lower level of unity, a lower level of bittle, not a level in which we are totally nullified as if we don't exist. We definitely do exist. God wants us to exist. That is the whole purpose of creation. God wants us to be separate, to be independent, he does not want to overwhelm us with his presence. He wants us to discover it on our own. He wants us to come to it on our own. With using our own seichel, our own Yiddish cup, we should come to the realization that there's a God in this world. And therefore we should willingly enter into this relationship. And we should willingly crown God as my king. And he can command me and I will obey him because he's my king. So that is a lower level of bitl where we nullify ourselves like the subject nullifies himself before his king, 
and we willingly enter into this marriage, willingly enter into this relationship. And thereby we become unified with God. But it's a lower level of unity. Here, Alter Rebbe is introducing two new concepts. He's explaining the concept of a higher level of unity and the lower level of unity by taking these two names, the two attributes of Hashem, Yudke Vavke, and the attribute of Adnai, and combining the two. And the difference between the higher level of unity and the lower level of unity depends on how we combine these two names. If the predominant name is the higher name, Yudke Vavke, and the name Adnai is, is um, absorbed within the name Yudke Vavke, that's the higher level of unity. And the lower level of unity is where the, the dominant name is Adnai and the Yudke Vavke is, is assumed in the name Adnai. As we saw last week, the way it's written in the Siddur, you, have, you combine the two names, you write one letter from this name and another letter from this name, Yud from the Yudke, then Aleph, Hey, then Dalid, Vav, then Nun, and Hey, and then Yud. But the first letter, that's the, the prevailing, that's the predominant name. <coughs> and if the first letter is Aleph, the name Adnai, and then you add the name Yud from the Yud Kevavke, that means that the predominant is the name Adnai. And what does that mean? And what that means is, we explained earlier, that from the name Yud Kevavke, from Hashem's name himself, his essential name, on that level, of self-nullification, and that level of unity, there is no time, there is no space. It, is totally, it totally transcends time and space. Just like the name Yudke Vavke means Haya, Hove, Viyyeh. And it's all in one word, Ke'echad, like one. Past, present, and future. Totally transcends time and space. And that level of unity, there is no time, there is no space. Time and space begin with the letter Adnai. But nevertheless... You can have the name Adnai where there is time and space, but the name Adnai is subsumed in the name Yudke Vavke. And we discussed last week, the analogy is the Holy of Holies in the Temple. The holiest spot on earth. The, we witnessed the greatest miracle. The greatest miracle ever. What was the great miracle in the Holy of Holies? That you had space, and at the same time, you transcended space. The Holy of Holies had to, took up a certain measurement. The Ark took up a measurement. And yet, when you measured the space, the room had a specific measurement. When you measured the Ark, it had a specific measurement. And yet, when you measured from one end of the Ark to the other end of the room, and, and one end of the Ark to the other end of the room, it's as if the Ark didn't exist. It took up no space. It took up space, and it didn't take up space simultaneously. You're squaring the circle at the same time. Is it possible to square a circle? It's a logical contradiction. And that's exactly what happened in the Holy of Holies. You squared the circle. There was time, there was space, a specific time, a specific space, and yet at the same time, it's as if it didn't exist. As we find in the Midrash, that God showed Adam, all future generations, in one split second. So there is time, and yet it's all in one second. Time and not time at the same time. It boggles the mind, boggles the human mind, the human imagination. The truth is, when the 
physicist, modern physicist, digs deep into, into reality, he discovers that at the atomic level, also reality displays paradoxical tendencies. When you get to the electromagnetic level, uh, level of radiation, you see paradoxical tendencies. Particles, waves at the same time. It's impossible. Particles are particles and waves are waves. How can you have both at the same time? But when you get to the core of reality, you discover paradoxical tendencies. So the truth is that at the holy of holies, it was manifest. But the truth is, this is true of all of creation. That from God's point of view, all of creation is really, is not about time and space. It's not about separation. On the contrary, it's the ultimate expression of God's essence. That God is so infinite, He's truly infinite, that He even transcends being infinite. He's beyond being beyond. He's so infinite that He's not limited to being infinite. He's so undefined that He can even... He can't even be limited to being infinite. He can be infinite and finite at the same time because he's neither. He's not infinite, he's not finite, he's not yes and not no. Beyond any definition and description, God is the essence. And therefore God could express himself both in infinite and finite and he can combine the two. And the truth is that is the mystery of life, the whole mystery of life. And we know it from from, from our own personal experience. The miracle of life is the ultimate paradox. The combination of body and soul. How could you combine matter and energy? They're two opposites. And yet only God could combine body and soul until they become inseparable. That's the ultimate expression of the essence of God. That God is so unlimited, so undefined that he can square the circle and he can combine infinite and finite. Matter and energy. Time and space and beyond time and space simultaneously. You're writing and you're not writing at the same time because God is undefined. So from God's point of view, there is time and space. The name Adnai creates time and space. But time and space is not about time and space. Time and space is an expression of God's ultimate unity, God's ultimate absolute essence. So this is the combining of the two names, Adnai, together with the name Yudke Vavke. And the name Adnai, which creates time and space, is subsumed in the name Yudke Vavke in God's essential name. That's the higher level of unity. In other words, even after there is time and space. But what is that time and space all about? That time and space is really totally unified with the, the essence of God. Inseparable from the essence of God. And it's just an expression of the essence of God. So it's not about a disconnect, uh, a separation from God. On the contrary... It's expressing the ultimate, ultimate level of God. How God is so undefined that He can even express Himself in time and space. He can even express Himself in a finite way. So what is finite? It's not about being finite. There is finite. There is space. If you measure the Holy of Holies, it took up a space. And the ark took up space. But at the same time, it wasn't about space. It wasn't about limits and definitions and space. On the contrary... It was about expressing the true essence of God, how truly undefined God is, how truly infinite God is, that he can even express himself in space. God is so unlimited that he can even contain himself and reveal himself in a tiny little space. That's the whole idea, that God reveals himself through the temple. How can God limit himself to a piece of real estate? And a Jew in prayer, this, a Jew in prayer 
Every day we turn our face. Where do we turn our face when we pray three times a day? As we've been doing for thousands of years? To Jerusalem. Wherever you are in the world, you turn to Jerusalem. Wherever you are in Jerusalem, you turn to the temple. Wherever you are in the temple, you turn to the Holy of Holies. I'm praying to God. Prayer is something spiritual. Meditation. Why am I connecting it to a physical location? But that is, that is the whole essence. That is the whole essence of a Jew. And that is why the nations of the world have such a problem with Israel. Their problem with Israel is they have no problem with holiness. But they don't get, they don't understand how can you associate holiness with a land, with a physical land, with a geographic location. Holiness is something inward. Meditation, spirituality, something you carry inside of you. It doesn't matter where you are. It transcends time and space. How can you connect Eretz Earth, land, geographic location with holiness. What's the connection in holiness and physical? But that is the holy of holies. That is the whole essence of a Jew. A Jew is holy of holies. Because a Jew's mission in life is to reveal God's paradox, to reveal God's essence. How God is so undefined that the truth is the entire world is not about a world being a world that's separate from God, that's independent from God. The whole entire world is really the ultimate expression of God's essence that the entire world should be permeated with a sense of godliness through Torah mitzvot. A Jew is able to bring godliness into every aspect of time and space and to reveal that really everything in the world is really, is really the ultimate expression of God's essence. That God is so undefined that he can even express himself in a physical object. How do you take a physical object and you do a mitzvah with it? And you, how do you take leather hide of an animal and you write a Torah with it and the leather hide becomes holy? What does leather hide of an animal have to do with holiness? What does something physical have to do with holiness? This is spiritual and this is physical. But it's only God, the essence of God, that's truly undefined. That God could be contained even in the physical. That the object becomes a sacred object. The land becomes holy. The temple, the synagogue becomes holy. The object they do a mitzvah with becomes holy. You become holy. When a Jew has circumcision, you become holy. Your being becomes holy. Every part of your being becomes holy. The most intimate part of your being becomes holy. That's the whole essence of a Jew. That's the whole essence of a Jew's mission. To reveal that the world is not about time, space, I, a world that's separate from God. But to reveal, to make this world into a holy of holies. To make this world into a place where it becomes the ultimate expression of God's essence. That's truly undefined. As King Solomon said when he built the first temple, he cried out in astonishment. He says, God, the heavens and the heavens of heavens do not contain you. Where is God found? In this physical building. In this physical world, in the geographic location. What do you mean? God is contained in the building? Could you contain a concept in the building, in the location? 2 plus 2 is 4. Has, you can't give it an address. 2 plus 2 is 4 is on 203 East 82nd Street. It transcends time and space. And that's just a mental concept. How much more so spirituality, energy and spirituality, and godliness. But that is the whole point. Because God's essence is so unlimited, is so undefined, that He can even reveal Himself in the language of the Talmud. Simtsim, Hashem condensed Himself between the poles of the ark, and He revealed Himself through the poles of the ark. Yes, in this physical location, that's where God's presence is manifest. God is everywhere, isn't it? I mean, yes. It's, it's wherever you are. God is everywhere. 
But where was he manifest? In the Holy of Holies. And a Jew's mission is to reveal that the whole world is really holy. The whole world is really God's world. And we reveal that through the Torah and the mitzvah. And that's why God sent the Jew all over the world. And the purpose of the temple was that the light of the temple should emanate all over the world. It shouldn't be contained in the temple. It should influence and elevate the whole world. So a Jew looks at the world. We don't look at the world as a dark place, as a place that's disconnected from God. The Jew ultimately, through Torah and mitzvah, the Jew is empowered through Torah and mitzvah to take this world and to transform it into a godly place, into a garden of Eden, to transform it into, to reveal God's essence in this world. So this is the unification of the two names. The name Adnai, which creates time and space. So we're not saying that there is no time and space. We're transcending to a level where there is no time and space. The world of emanation. No, we are operating within the world of creation. There is time and space. Just like in the Holy of Holies, there was time and space. But it was a different time and space. It was a Holy of Holies. It was a time and space that manifested this wondrous paradox that it did exist and it didn't exist at the same time because it wasn't really about time and space. The time and space was just an expression of God's true essence. How God is so unlimited. How God is so undefined. And He's so limitless, infinite, that he can, he can even rise above being infinite and He can even reveal Himself and manifest Himself in time, within time and space. Within a physical object. Within a holy land. Within a geographic location. And that's why a Jew connects prayer, which is something spiritual, to physically facing the holy and holy of holies. So this is the ultimate unification, the higher level of unity, where there is time and space, but time and space is subsumed in the name Yudke Vavke, in the name, the essential name of God, which totally transcends time and space. So you have both names, you have time and space, but what's dominant, what's pre- prevalent, is the sense that it's really, it's not about time and space, it's really about a level which is totally beyond time and space, and this is the ultimate expression of godliness. Without destroying time and space. Time and space, but time and space is not about being time and space, it's about something else. It's about expressing the true, infinite essence of God. Undefined essence of God. That's the higher level of unity. Then we have the lower level of unity. The lower level of unity is the other combination of the two names. But starting with the Aleph, starting with Adonai, that's the predominant name. That there's time and space, and yet within time and space, you also have the name Yudke Vavke that transcends time and space. And that means is, as we explained earlier, that if the world were only created through the name Hashem, then the world would truly be nullified in existence. Because since it's totally dependent on God, God did not create the world as an independent reality. God created the world in a way that it, it's constantly recreated. It's entirely dependent on the creative energy. It cannot exist for a second without God willingly and consciously, deliberately creating it each and every moment, forcing it into existence. Otherwise it would cease to exist if it never existed. Re- reversing to its natural state, which is absolute nothingness. Something that doesn't exist, not in its source, it doesn't exist. There's no hint of it. Absolutely doesn't exist. So since it is constantly dependent on its source, and so it's, it's, it's like the light of the sun within the sun, which is totally nullified. It's there, but it doesn't, it, there's no separation. And so much so that it, it, would, it, it would even be a reflection of God. 
It would be divine. Because all it is is really the divine energy. Because that is the level of emanation. That is the level of the divine attributes. That's the highest level of the, the unity of God, where there's no symptom, where there's no contraction, there's no concealment. The levels that are beyond the attribute of royalty, that's the, the world of emanation is totally one with God, and they are godly. They're divine attributes, and godly attributes. It's only through the name Elohim, which is numerical value of nature, that God has the ability to conceal himself. It's like the sun and the shield. The shield covers up on the sun. So God covered up on his light. It's like the light went through the prism. And when the light goes through the prism, although the light itself remains pure white light, but when the light goes through the prism, what do you see on the other end? A yellow light, depending on the prism, on the glass. Yellow light, red light. So the effect of the light is it breaks down the light into many different colors. The light itself remains untouched, undefined, pure. The light remains pure light. But the effect of the light changes. Now you have variated light. You have different colors. So God created the world not only through the attribute of Hashem, but also through the attribute of Elohim, which is Simpson, which is God's ability to contain Himself and to uh, diffuse the light through many letters. The letters that contain the content of the letters. Just like letters contain emotion, letters express an emotion, express an idea. But the letters diffuse and define it and contain it and therefore it, it, by the time the light goes through the letters you end up with many letters and the light is diffused and therefore all these letters combine to give the different names that create the plural, pluralistic uh, nature of this world many many different objects and, and many different levels etc but all of this is only regard for us for, this is only from our point of view we are in the receiving end so from our perspective, the divine light is limited and the divine light is differentiated and therefore we do get a limited world, a defined world, a world that's within very well-defined parameters of time and space and words and concepts and that's the world of ego that we, that we live in, that we operate in. But from God's point of view, there is no change. Because from God's point of view, there is no dichotomy, there is no split. And that's where the analogy breaks down. This sun has a shield. The light has a prism. But God is the light, and God is the prism. God is the sun, and God is the shield. It's the right hand and the left hand. The left hand covering up on the right hand. The letters, which are the prism, through which the divine energy is contained and differentiated, the letters are also God's letters. Everything is God. So it's like, it's like the grasshopper that has, has a covering. But it, it's part of the grasshopper. You can't separate the two. So God is the light and God is the cover. To us, from our perspective, we are the result of the interplay between the light and the, and the shield. And we can never rise above that split. That's why our life is split. We have a body and we have a soul. We have east and we have west and material and spiritual. We cannot really rise above that split. Everything is divided, yes and no. Everything is divided right down the middle. We can't overcome that split. We are a result of that split. We are created. We're not God. But from God's perspective, God transcends that split. There is no split. There is no right. There is no left. It's all one. There's no body. There's no soul. There's no material, spiritual. It's 
this is the revelation is God and the concealment is God. It's God concealing himself. So what are we? We're, we're, it's all God. So from God's point of view, it's really all God. And the analogy is, like the teacher, Einstein, wants to communicate to a simple student. How is he going to com- communicate to a simple student? He's living in a different universe. But Einstein, because he's the true master, he's the only one who can communicate to a brilliant student. The highfalutin professor who, who only has three, only, he can only communicate to people on his level, highbrow, because he himself doesn't understand what he's talking about. The true master, Einstein, is able to communicate to a simple student. That's the, that's the proof that he's Einstein. Because he really mastered the subject. So he can use simple analogies. He can really be crystal clear. He doesn't have to speak in highbrow, complex language that no one understands. To hide his ignorance. When Einstein is able to communicate to this simple student, he has to use analogies, he has to use simple language. And to the delight of the simple student, the simple student is able to get it. He understands what Einstein is talking about. On his simple level, he understands the analogy. He's bringing him an analogy, a simple analogy, something he can relate to in his limited mind, his limited understanding. Now, the student, all the student sees is this limited analogy and this limited concept. He doesn't see the bigger picture. He cannot see. He cannot possibly see the bigger picture. He's simply, his mind is simply not equipped. But Einstein is able to see within this analogy, he sees the whole picture. The analogy doesn't conceal anything to Einstein. He condensed this entire brilliant concept into the simple analogy. And it's all there. Every aspect of the analogy represents a different aspect of this brilliant idea. To Einstein, there's no concealment. Why? Because everything comes from Einstein. The idea is Einstein. The analogy is also from Einstein. The simple language that he's communicating with is all his. It's all him. See, there's no cover-up. He can't cover up on himself. So he sees within this limited, tiny limited frame of reference and analogy, he sees the, the, the whole scope and he sees the bigger picture. It's all in there. It's all contained in there. So multiply that infinite times with God. God limited himself. And created the world of time and space through the name Adonai. A very limited world. A world that's not even like a drop in the ocean in comparison to the ocean. It's much less to God than a drop in the ocean in comparison to the ocean. It's a world that's so limited in, in reference to God, there's no connection. A world of time and space and ego and I. And yet God sees within the world, God sees the infinite. Nothing changes to God. Why? Because the energy comes from God. The infinite energy to create comes from God. And God's God's infinite ability to hide and to conceal through which he creates the world is also God. The letters with which he creates the world is all God. So to God there's no concealment. It's like his left hand hand is covering up in his right hand. What difference does it make? It's you. Your right hand, your left hand, it's you. All there is is you. So this is him, this is him, and it's all him. And the result that comes as as a result of the interplay of the right and the left of the of the uh, revelation of God and the concealment of God, which is us, the created beings, it's all God. So from God's point of view, even after he creates time and space, and he created a very narrow world, a very tiny world, a very tiny frame of reference, it's all God. And within time and space, it's all God. God sees in this world, what does God see? 
Everything in the world is just a metaphor for God. It's just a parable. Everything in this world is just a parable. A metaphor for something infinite. We don't see it because we're on the receiving end. We're that simple student. We don't get it. But by studying the Torah and studying God's mind and studying the Torah and doing the mitzvot, eventually we will work our way up and we will get the bigger picture. And that's Mashiach. Mashiach is when we'll be able to see and to discover godliness within the world. We'll look at this world and realize how everything in the world is really a metaphor for something infinite, for something godly, for something divine. Now we don't see it. We have blinders. So we take the world at face value. And the world is a very false world because the world presents itself as an independent reality, disconnected, divorced from its source, from its essence. And that's, that's a Madison Avenue hype. That's a very false picture. The truth is that everything in the world is just a metaphor for godliness, for the divine. Every tiny detail, every aspect of this world. Every aspect of time and space and existence is really a metaphor for the infinite. The infinite is contained in here. It's all in it. God sees it. There's no concealment for God. There's no darkness for God. Nothing changed. God saw it before he came up with the analogy and the parable. And he sees it after he came up with the parable and the analogy. Nothing changed. It's all the same. So from God's point of view, even time and space is really godly, is really divine. See, even after God creates a world and we sense ourselves and we have a healthy sense of ego and we have a healthy sense of separation, from God's perspective, there is no separation. Because it's all divine. The concealment is God, the revelation is God, it's all God. So time and space are filled with God. There's no space empty of Him. Everything is God. Everything is God. Everything is truly nullified before God. And everything is truly unified with God. We don't sense it. But it doesn't change the reality. The reality is that everything is nullified before God and everything is truly one with God. How does that help us if we don't feel it? Knowing that that's the truth and that's God's point of view and that's the ultimate point of view. But knowing that enables us to fulfill our mission and fulfill our purpose. And that is to overcome our difficulties, overcome our egos, to be able to submit ourselves to God, to be able to overcome our temptations, to be able to overcome our difficulties, and to be able to do what we need to do. So although we cannot, we do feel ourselves. We don't feel that we're nullified. We don't feel that we're totally unified with God. If we were, we would have no temptations. We would all be tzaddikim, we would all be saints, righteous people. We don't sense it, we don't experience it, we don't feel it. But knowing that this is the truth, and knowing that from God's point of view, we are presently, today, now, in the year 2005, every aspect of our lives, every detail, every nook and cranny, every, every minute, every second, every human experience, business, relationship, everything, is all an expression of God and connected with God and totally unified with God and nullified before God. That gives us, knowing that, gives us the strength to be able to do what we need to do, and that is to willingly enter into a relationship with God and to, to do the Torah and the mitzvot with joy. Page 913, the second paragraph. Now, since God's attribute of Malchut is united with his essence and being in an absolute union, as will be explained, space and time which are created from Malchut are therefore also completely nullified in relation to God's essence and being. Just as sunlight, while 
whilst it is still within the orb of the sun, is nullified in the sun. This means to say, as long as Malchut still exists in the state of complete union with God's essence and being, space and time, the source of worlds, as found within the attribute of Malchut, are utterly nullified relative to God. This state is called higher level unity. It exists only before the descent of Malchut through various Simpson in order to vest itself in the lower worlds, thereby creating them and providing them with life. It is then that the words enjoy the state of higher level unity, because from the perspective of the pristine source of Malchut and Adnod, which brings about their existence, their actual creation is as yet inconceivable, inasmuch as Malchut and Adnod are still in a state of inclusion within their source. Consequently, space and time exist there in the same manner as the light of the sun exists within the sun, in a state of complete nullity. The analogy is like in the Holy of Holies. In other words, there is time and space. There is a name Adonai, which creates time and space. But it is totally unified within the source. And all it is is really a reflection of the source, just like the light of the sun is nothing other than a reflection of the sun and is totally nullified before the sun and unified within the sun. So too, the time and space are not an independent reality. Time and space are just a reflection of, of God, of the divine, of God's true essence, truly undefined essence. That God is so undefined that He's even able to express Himself and create something finite and limited. So it's there, but it's not about itself. It's all about the divine. Just like the light of the sun. The light of the sun is there, but it's not about the light. It's about the sun. So it, time and space exist. Just like in the Holy of Holies. It existed. It was real. You measured it. It was real. It wasn't an illusion. But it wasn't about time and space. It was about the divine. And that's why it didn't take up any space. There was no ego. There was no space. It took up space. It didn't take up space. Because it's not about me. It's about the divine. Who's truly undefined and infinite and divine, even beyond the infinite. And therefore, he can even express himself in time and space. So the, the light of the sun is in the sun, but it doesn't exist because it's not about the light. It's all about the sun. So time and space exist, but it's all about the divine. That's why it was holy of holies. It was all about Hashem. It was all about Godliness. That's the higher level of unity. And this is the meaning of the alternation of the letters of the name of Adonai with the letters of the name Havaya. When the letters of one divine name are alternated with the letters of another, the name whose initial letter appears first is the dominant one, the second name being intertwined and encompassed by it. If, for example, the first letter is the initial of a divine name that designates Chesed, and the second letter is the initial of a divine name that designates Gevura, the revelation of Chesed will predominate. One speaks of the alternation of the letters of the name of Adonai with the letters of the name Chavaya. When referring to Malchut and Adonai, while they are still united with God's essence and being, which are too, too lofty to serve as the source for created beings. The eventual source of the existence of created beings in Malchut and Adonai, nevertheless, since the divine name Chavaya is dominant, example, since Adonai is submerged with Chavaya, all existence is completely nullified in relation to God's essence and being just as sunlight is devoid of all identity within the sun. The name Chavaya indicates that he transcends time, that he was, is, and will be 
all at the same instant. Past, present, and future meld into one within the name Chavaya, in indicating that Chavaya transcends time. As it is stated in Raya Mechema on Parshat Pincus. And likewise, the name Chavaya transcends space, for Chavaya continuously brings into existence the whole dimension of space, from the uppermost level of space to the lowermost level of space, and in the four directions. Clearly, the divine name Chavaya transcends time and space. Malchut and Adonai, however, do bear some relation to time and space. Nevertheless, since the letters of the name of Adonai are interspaced with the letters of the name Chavaya, the dimensions of time and space are completely nullified in relation to God. This is the state called Yechida Ilat, or higher level of unity. Now, although Hashem transcends time and space, He is nevertheless also found below, within uh, space and time. Even as space and time, i.e. the dimensions that constitute the world, exist in their own eyes as independent entities. That is, He unites with His attribute of Malchut, from which space and time are derived and come into existence. This refers to Malchut after its descent through the various Simsumim. However, even this level of Malchut is united with Hashem. Thus, Hashem, who transcends space, time and space, is also found within time and space. The reason created beings are unable to perceive Him is that Malchut conceals His presence. They thus regard themselves as possessing independent existence subject to the limitations and divisions of time and space. Okay, so you have royalty as it's part of the ten attributes, as it's still part of the world of emanation, which is um, totally unified uh, within, within Hashem. Then you have the attribute of royalty as it projects outward, as it uh, relates to the lower worlds, and it brings the lower worlds into existence. And he's saying even that level... Um, the attribute of Malchut remains connected. It's still connected to the source, but in, in a different way. There, here, the name Adnai is primary, is prevalent, primary, and the, um, the name Yudke Vavke is, is subsumed within the name Havai, is concealed within the, is concealed within the name Adnai. And that is that even after God does create time and space, and time and space become prominent and active, the subject of royalty is active, it creates time and space, and the world that we live and operate in, even then, the divine, it's still part of the divine. Continue, and this is... This is Yehuda Ta'a, or low-level unity. In this state, created beings are not totally nullified in relation to their source. The attribute of Malchut in as much as it allows them to be aware of their own existence. Right, so you can't say that the world doesn't exist. The whole point of the divine attribute of royalty is to create something outside of him in order to create relationships. So there has to be something outside of him. So the source, the world has a content. The world has a meaning. Time has a meaning. Space has a meaning. The world has a meaning because it's very meaningful. That's the only way we can have a relationship with God. So creation has an independent meaning. So you can't say that it's completely nullified. Okay. Meaning the intertwining of the letters of the name Havaya within the letters of the name of Adonai. In this instance, the divine name Havaya is intertwined and vested within the name of Adonai. I.e. Havaya is concealed and submerged, while Adonai is revealed and predominant, allowing for the creation of time and space. 
i.e., his essence and being, which is called by the name Ein Sof, the Infinite One, completely fills the whole earth temporally and spatially. For in the heavens above and on the earth below and in the four directions, everything is equally permeated with the Ein Sof light. For Hashem is to be found on the earth below exactly as in the heavens above. For everything, including both heaven and earth, is within the dimension of space, which is utterly nullified in the Ein Sof light which clothes itself in it through Hashem's attribute of Malchut that is united with Him. In relation to the Ein Sof light, which totally transcends time and space, there exists no difference between heaven and earth. Hashem is found equally in heaven and upon the earth. So God is called Hamakam, God is called the, the space, and the Haggadah, the place. We're about to say in the Haggadah, Baruch Hamakam, thank, because He is the space of the world, He contains the whole world, because the whole world is really Him. What is the world? The world is the divine energy to create. What does the divine energy create? That's the name Adnai. That's the divine attribute of royalty. So it's really, it's all Him. The divine attribute to create, the divine attribute to conceal. So He is really the whole, the space of the world is really, is really all Him. In other words, God creates the world with, with His attributes. He creates the world with the attribute of Adnai. And He creates the world um, with the attribute of royalty. And that's why he creates the world in a way that he's distant from the world, just like a king. The nature of royalty is that the king is distant from his subject. Otherwise, they, wouldn't, they would have no respect for him. There's an office, there's an aura. And there has to be an aura. There has to be a space, a separation between the king, the leader, and the followers. If he's accessible, and if he's like anyone else, then he's not a king. It's just like the head. The head is the king of the body. You know, you have a separate hat for the head. The king has to be treated differently. You know, the head and shoulders above, above everyone else. So the king rules by being separate, by being remote, inaccessible, removed. So there's an aura around the king. There's an awe that's associated with the king, with a leader. He's not a buddy. He's not your friend. He's not your buddy. He's a king. He's a leader. So God also creates the world with that sense of remoteness, with that sense of distance. Because creation must be that way. Because if God were to reveal himself, we would cease to exist. The only reason we're able to exist is two reasons. One is because the divine energy is constantly creating us each and every moment. If the divine energy would stop creating us, we would cease to exist. The other reason is because the divine energy is hidden from us is concealed from us. That's why we call it nothing. Because it's remote. We can't comprehend it. It's beyond our comprehension. It's so far removed from us, we can't even begin. We can hardly even grasp something spiritual, let alone grasp something godly. It's just beyond our capacity. We're not, God. We're not God. We're not godly. We don't have it within us. So we can't even begin to really comprehend infinite, to really comprehend something that totally transcends our whole frame of reference, transcends time, space, words, concepts, we can't even go there. We don't even know what it looks like. We don't even know where to begin. Our whole frame of reference is such a narrow, limited frame of reference. We understand words, concepts. That's our whole, our whole arena of operation. Um, so it's remote from us. It's removed from us. And if it would not be removed from us, if God would reveal himself, even slightly, we would cease to exist. We would be totally nullified, completely nullified within our source. We wouldn't sense ourselves. We would lose all sense of I, all sense of self. We would be completely nullified in our source. 
So in order for creation to exist and to continue existing as it does, with our healthy sense of egos and healthy sense of self and sense of I and sense of separation, time and space, and this rigid world that we live in, which is very rigidly defined in time, space and ego, God has to be remote and God has to be removed. There has to be a distance. And that is why God creates the world with the attribute of royalty. Because it's that attribute, that distance, that actually enables the world to come into existence and enables this sense of space and time and I and enables the purpose of creation that God wanted that we should be separate and yet we should willingly choose to enter into a relationship, joyously choose to accept God's sovereignty, joyously choose to marry God, to enter into this, mar- to enter into this relationship. In relation to the ain't self light, which totally transcends time and space, there exists no difference between heaven and earth. God is found equally in heaven and upon the earth. This being so, why are time and space not totally nullified? They are not nullified because God's attribute of Malchus is the attribute of Tzimtzum, and concealment, whose function is to hide the ain't self light, so that it will not be perceived by created beings, so that the existence of time and space should not be completely nullified, and there will be no dimensions of time and space whatsoever, even for the lower world. I.e., it is only because of the concealment affected by Malchus that time and space exist for created beings. So this is the attribute of royalty we just discussed that, that creates the concealment and that allows, allows for time and space to exist. If God would reveal himself and would cease to be remote, then... It will, we would be completely nullified in existence. There would be no sense of I, and there's no sense of I, and there's no sense of time, and there's no sense of space. As we discussed the analogy the other week, we all have that experience. When you lose any sense of time, when you become so absorbed in what you're doing, that you lose any sense of time. Because when you forget yourself, you lose a sense of I, then you lose a sense of time. There's no time, there's no space. So if God would remove the attribute of Adnut, of malchut, of royalty, of remoteness, of distance, and he would reveal himself in an intimate way, we would cease to be separate, we would cease to exist. We wouldn't sense I, and we would lose all sense of space, and we would lose no, all sense of time. You so, when you're all absorbed in yourself, and it's all about I. No, I'm saying an example, when you're absorbed in a project, not in yourself. No, Let's say when you're so absorbed in a project, we all experience it sometimes, occasionally. When you're like in a peak condition, you're all absorbed in what you're doing, and like you're like in a trance. And so you can wake up, like hours flew by. Where, where am I? Where was I? There was a beautiful story with the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe. He, tr- he was traveling uh, with his son, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak. This was Rabbi Shalom Dovber. And I forget which city they were visiting, somewhere in Europe. You know, they would often travel to Europe, whether it was Germany or France. And they took three hotel rooms, one for the, for the previous Rebbe and one for the Rebbe, his father and a third room, a connecting room, an adjoining room. And the previous Rebbe says, he walks into the adjoining room, the connecting room, and he sees that his father is sitting, oblivious to anything around him, lost in thought. Anyway, the son, the previous Rebbe, goes about his business. He walks in a few hours later. His father's sitting in the same position. He hasn't budged an inch. Lost in thought, oblivious time and space. He walks in a few hours later, same position. Many, many hours later, like his father like, wakes up from this, like in a trance, and he starts speaking to his son. And, and the previous Rebbe said that he felt from his questions, and he didn't let on that he realized this, 
that his father had no idea where he was or what time it was. <laughs> he was trying to, you know, it was embarrassing to ask, like, where are we? What time? Where are we? When is it? But he understood from the questions that his father had no idea. He was like in a different world. He, he came out of the trance and he, he had no idea where they are, what, what time of the year it is. Like, it's like in a different world. And, you know, but he made believe like he didn't realize, didn't want to embarrass his father. And, and um, he says later on, his father told him that, that he was lost in thought because that became the foundation, the seed for one of the most complex, deepest Hasidic discourses ever written. It was a long hemshech, a long continuation of Hasidic discourses and deepest, profoundest, you know, delving into the deepest aspects of Hasidic philosophy. This was written in the year 1913. So this was right before then, and his father, this was the kernels, the seeds, for that whole long, continuous writing. And, uh, you know, the Rebbe told the story. He says, this is an idea. You get an idea what it means. It says, when a Jew reaches a level where his soul expires, his soul yearns for God to such an intense degree that his soul desires to leave the body, and his soul expires. He says, here you have a living example of that. Because what happens when a soul expires, literally expires? There's no more time, there's no more space. The soul rises transcends the body. You transcend. You're beyond time. You're beyond space. It says, here, the Rebbe reached it while alive and well and healthy in this world. He reached such a level. He was in a state where, even when he, when he was awake, when he came back to himself, he, had, he was like beyond time and space. He had no sense of time, space, orientation. He was in a different world. He was totally cleaving and, and one with God. So, if, if we were to live in that level, if a person would constantly live in that level, if God were to reveal Himself in an intimate way, then we would cease to, we would cease to experience self, I, time, and space. When there's no separation, there's no time and no space. And the less rigid the I is, the quicker the time and space is also, the less rigid the time and space is. The more rigid a person is, the more rigid the time and space is. The less rigid a person is, the less rigid your time and space is. That's why Einstein said time is relative. It's not absolute. It's not rigid. It's all relative to where you're at and what you're experiencing. Um, but if God were to reveal His intimate self, then time and space would cease to exist for us. So the only way for time and spaces to exist is through the attribute of royalty, through God's remoteness, through God's distance. And therefore, He's able to create a world in which He's hidden and concealed Okay, the next, the next part starts a whole different subject. We only have uh, 10 minutes left, so let's open up for questions um, or comments. I know these are very, uh, these are very deep, profound. Difficult is a better word. Difficult, deep. And, um, but, you know, Hasidim spend hours and hours trying to learn this, understand it, because this is really the foundation of a Jew's life. The foundation of a Jew's life is really understanding the unity of God. You can't just say, I believe in God and God is one, next. <laughs> no. The idea God has to make you jump out of your skin. The reality of God, the unity of God, it has to engage you. And ultimately it has to engage your mind. And Hasidim spend their lifetimes delving into these concepts. Yeah, the Rebbe Marash, the fourth Lubavitcher Rebbe, 
once suffered from an illness. What was his illness? He spent so much time and he understood to such an extent this idea that there's nothing but God. And that if we were to see the divine energy and we were to realize how entirely dependent we are on the divine energy and that we are nothing other than the divine energy, we have nothing on our own, everything we have is nothing other than divine energy. If we, if we weren't so coarse, if we were to see it, we would cease to exist, we would be totally nullified within God, just like the, the light of the sun is totally unified and nullified within the sun, all it senses is the sun, doesn't even sense itself, we would not sense ourselves. Not that the water is not here, but you wouldn't sense the water, you wouldn't see the water. All you would sense and see is the miracle of the process of the divine creative energy creating it. He reached such a level that he simply did not see. He couldn't see anything physical. He had a problem. All he saw was godliness. And his father, the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Samoth Sebe, had to come into the room, and he was the only thing he could see. And then he left him a stick, and he was able to see his stick. And slowly, and then he said, he, he, he said that his father uh, repeated before him, said before him, 300 Hasidic discourses. And Hasidim say that the 300 Hasidic, Hasidic discourses were discussions on the lower level of unity that we just learned. Explaining how from the divine attribute of royalty there is a world. God wants there to be a world. The whole delight, the whole pleasure, the whole purpose of creation is a God desire that He wanted to be a king. And we are the only ones who can make Him a king. In order for God to be a king, there has to be an ego. There has to be time, there has to be space, there has to be a world that's separate from God. And to God is so precious. When a Jew overcomes a difficulty, overcomes a test, overcomes his Yetzirah and pushes himself and pushes his limits and does the right thing and lives in the physical world and is part of the physical world and yet transforms the physical world and makes the physical world into a holy place... This is the whole purpose of creation. So he, he told him 300 Hasidic discourses explaining the preciousness, how meaningful it is and how, how important it is that there is, from one perspective, there is a world and the world has a tremendous, uh, tremendous meaning and, and that cured him. That he was so there able... there has to be a balance. There has to be a balance. There has to be a balance. And that's, that's the nature of life. The nature of life is like a heartbeat. The heart pumps in and out. You breathe in and you breathe out. It's like birds. Birds fly. They flap their wings up and down. Constant motion. Up and down. Up and down. That's, that's the flow of life. Life is pulse, pulsating. Because that's the up and down. On one hand, you want to be totally nullified before God because you realize that everything is one with God. We're completely nullified before God. We're totally unified with God. But on the other hand, you realize that God created the world and God wants a world. And the purpose is we are God's ambassadors and we have to fill our mission. We have to leave the palace. We have to go out of that warm, heavenly, divine place and we have to go into a very a world that's dark and cold and every day that passes it appears to be it gets a little darker and a little colder and a little meaner and a little uh, cruder and uh, a little more thuggish if we're following the news lately. But... And that's our mission, our purpose, to light up this darkness. So, yes, it's a constant balance. It's a constant back and forth. And that's the, the, the life of a Jew. Shabbos, one day a week is holy, and then you go back into the weekday. Six days a week you engage in the mundane world. And then you go back into Shabbos. It's a constant back and forth, and back, holiday and then weekday. We, holiday and then, and then intermediary days. So it's a constant, it's a balance, it's a constant back and forth, and that's the only way a Jew is able to accomplish his mission. When a Jew feels at home in the status, with the status quo, a Jew feels at home in this world, 
He can never accomplish his mission because you're part of the problem. How can you elevate the world? How can you release the divine sparks if you are the world? If you're rigid, if you're part of the world, if you're so egotistical, you're part of the problem. It's only when a Jew has that connection, that divine connection, that higher level of unity, that total nullification, that total absorption with God and unification with God, that when a Jew goes back and takes that energy and takes that experience and goes back into the business world, into the ordinary, the mundane, the daily life, and brings some of that zest and some of that godliness and some of that holiness to his daily life, that he's able to accomplish his mission and be a good representative for God and is able to connect his daily life and everything he comes in contact with and interacts with, with godliness. So it's a constant, yes, it's a constant back and forth. And that's the same with exile. For a Jew, this is exile. We don't feel comfortable with exile. And it's only when we don't feel comfortable with exile that we're able to accomplish our purpose of exile, which is to elevate the exile and to transform it into gu'ula. So, yes, life is a constant turmoil, back and forth, and it's alive. The Jew is alive. So it's up and down, it's a constant motion. Why is it so difficult then for the, you know, the, the biggest teacher of, of this teach people to become like this? If it's so, if it's so clear, why is it such a, you know, what rejection of it? Because it's all, it's all ignorance. Uh, people don't know. People simply don't know. Most Jews, due to no fault of their own, were never exposed to what we're discussing today. The depth of Judaism, the crown jewel of Judaism, the gem of Judaism. I mean, what we're discussing, it grips your mind. It's exciting. It's, it's, it's so deep. It's so profound. It's so genuine. It's so real. It helps you understand. It, helps, it explains what being Jewish is all about. It explains what's unique about being Jewish. It explains what's unique about the Jewish soul. But if you were never exposed to this, if you were never exposed to the Tanya, and Jews are brilliant, Jews are bright. And if all they were exposed to is something very superficial, and they were exposed to the techniques of Judaism and the mechanics of Judaism, but they were never exposed to the soul of Judaism, the depth, the soul that grabs your mind and grips you and that excites you, and your mind is on fire. If they were never exposed to that, all they hear is negatives. Don't do this and don't do that and don't do this. It's, it's stifling. And they couldn't run away fast enough. It's, it's unnatural. It's, it's, they don't relate to it. It's not relevant. It's just a bunch of rules. Don't, 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 don't. I can't, it's not a life. But when you understand the Tanya, and you learn the Tanya in depth, and you understand these concepts, and you delve into these concepts, because this is, it is very difficult. It's not something you do overnight. You have to learn. You have to meditate. You have to reflect. You have to think about it. You have to, you know, you have to dwell in it. You have to pray with it. And then your Judaism comes alive. And then you get a sense and appreciation. It's living, it's dynamic, it's real, it's vibrant, it's relevant, it's personal, it's intimate. Hashem becomes alive to you. Being Jewish comes alive to you. It's joyous, it's something you welcome, something you anticipate, something you, you're eager, something you, you make it a vibrant, a joyous part of your daily life. So the, there's good news and bad news. The bad news is there's a lot of ignorance out there. And the good news is that's what Chabad is all about. Chabad is three words. Education, education, education. Chachma, bina, das. Wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. The whole philosophy of Chabad is that every Jew must be educated. A Jew says twice a day, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Hashem It's not enough. 
Hashem Echad means you have to understand the unity of God. You can't just say, I believe in God and I believe that God is one. That's, that's superficial. Understand the unity of God. Understand what we're discussing here. The unity of God means that all, all of creation is nullified before God. All of creation is unified with God. Even after it's created. Just like before it was created. And therefore understand what it means that everything is nullified. And we just discuss four different levels. And to really get into in depth, study this. This is something you have to study. You have to learn. You have to think about it. You have to chew in it. You have to digest it. I mean, this is a lifetime. This is just giving you a taste. This is, this is hopefully giving, giving us a taste and, and hooking us for the rest of our life. Judaism is all engaging, all encompassing. And ultimately, especially for intelligent people, they have to, it has to engage your mind. Your mind is on fire. And then you're hooked. And then your, your Judaism comes alive. Shabbat is a Shabbat. A mitzvah is a mitzvah. Torah is Torah. Doing kindness is doing kindness. It all comes alive. There's no compartmentalization. It's not disconnected. It's jointed. Without that knowledge, without that experience, without that exposure to the depth, to the spirituality of Judaism and the depth and the personal relevance, it becomes very dry. Cut and dry and mechanical and compartmentalized and irrelevant and, and it just becomes stifling. Why wouldn't God... If, if that's his purpose, that we serve him, <clears throat> make it more accessible and more understandable to us. Why, why do we labor through these concepts which most of us will never, never really grasp? Well, the good news is our neshamas understand yeah. everything we're learning here, oh. 100%. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> so, so, so somebody understands. Somebody, understands. somebody, somebody, there's somebody home. Somebody understands everything. That makes sense. And you know, when the neshama understands, and you're learning about it consciously, something will trickle from the neshama into your mind. Because even though we're talking about such deep concepts, and sometimes it's, it seems like it's way beyond us, but our neshama understands it fully. And you know what? It's like, it's like refreshing water. Our neshama is like in a desert. It's parched. And this is the neshama's language. This is soul language. The neshama knows exactly what you're talking about. You're talking my language. I don't understand this other language. This is my language. But Your neshama the comes alive. Yeah, but the problem is, if it's subconscious, it doesn't help you. But when you're studying this consciously, and you're absorbing these concepts and these words, and these are neshama words... So it seeps into your neshama, and your neshama is all excited. And you can't help but feel that excitement. When you learn Hasidus, you walk away a little, a little uplifted, a little elevated, a little inspired, consciously, subconsciously, because this is your, this is your soul's language. This is, this is, this is, you're talking mamalashim. This is, this, is, this is what I'm all about. So whether you understand it fully or not, our neshama understands it. Our neshama gets excited. And the neshama gets excited, it trickles down. And we feel it consciously. It elevates us. We feel, we walk a little on thin air. We walk a little higher. And it gives us the strength to be able to negotiate the harshness of life and to be able to negotiate the difficulties of life and to be able to keep our eye on the ball and focus and, and, and do what we have to do. The problem, there are people who've been in a robotic fold and grown up in it and walk away from it. What's, what's their excuse? Ignorance comes in all places and all shapes. No, I'm just saying you're immersed in it. So that's the... Ignorance takes many shapes and forms. Just because you're immersed in it externally doesn't mean you're immersed in it internally. The whole essence of Chabad is that every Jew, Judaism has to engage your mind. It's not about looking the part. It's not about dressing the part. 
It's not about anything external. It's about, it has to engage you personally, your mind. You have to be on fire. You have to relate to it. And it means you have to do the hard work. The whole essence of Chabad is you have to grab the bull by the horn and you have to do the hard work. The Rebbe, it's not enough to believe in the Rebbe. That was the whole point of departure from the Alter Rebbe, from his, all of his colleagues. Alter Rebbe believed that everyone has to do the hard work. You have to eat for yourself, you have to breathe for yourself. It, Tanya is the world's first self-help book. Alter Rebbe says, I'll do everything I can to help you help yourself. But you have to help yourself. So just because a person is a card-carrying member and externally he looks the part and he went through the institutions, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that that person is really a Chabad Chassid, that person really studied and learned and that really uh, internalized it and integrated it. Um, so again, it's all ignorance. I would say it's all ignorance. People can grow up even within and they don't appreciate what they have. They don't appreciate what they have. They don't realize what they have because maybe that particular teacher that they were exposed to was not an effective teacher and, and you know, wasn't successful in, in really igniting that spark. Um, so it, yes, it is a failure. It is ignorance. Ignorance can come in many forms. Um, and the good news is you can do something about ignorance. Because if people really knew and people really realized and people were exposed, and that's why the Rebbe opened up 3,600 Chabad houses all over the world, a place where a Jew feels at home, it's a house, a home, and it was welcome to come in and to learn on their own level, to be exposed. And what the Chabad house does on all levels, from preschool to the 99-year-old, is education, 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 education. Exposing Judaism in a way that's beautiful, in a way that's elegant, in a way that's meaningful, in a way that's relevant. Presenting the mitzvot, the holidays, being Jewish in a powerful way, in a deep way. Teaching every Jew the depth of Torah. Not just teaching them the surface of Torah, the body of Torah. Teaching them the soul, the fire, the deepest depth of Torah. To any Jew and all Jews, unconditionally. Because every Jew has that neshama. And when the neshama hears the language of the neshama, it lights up. And someplace it lights up. You're touching all the right buttons. Because it's the truth. You're speaking language that, that resonates. They never heard this in Hebrew school. They never heard this in most quote-unquote label synagogues, in establishment synagogues. They want to hear neshama. They want to hear about the neshama. They want to hear the depth, the hardcore. And that's what the Tanya is. It goes straight to the point, straight to the hardcore, the deepest depth, the essence, the essence of the Jewish soul, the essence of Jewish unit, of the divine unity really gets to the heart of every matter that it touches. That's what Hasidus is. It illuminates the very heart of everything. What a holiday means, what each holiday means, what a mitzvah means, what each particular mitzvah means, what a Jew means, what our relationship... Every aspect, it really gets straight to the heart, to the heart of the matter. And that's why it's so alive. That's why it's so vibrant. That's why the Hasidic movement, the Chabad Lubavitch movement, is such a vibrant movement. Because it has... This is the Tanya. This is the Neshama. Because it has the, the heart, core, the essence of the neshama, which is vibrant and is dynamic and is relevant and it's real. So it's all about education. And we're not, we cannot rest. The Rebbe says we cannot rest until we reach every single Jew. And thank God, God gave us tools today. We have the internet, with which we can reach many tools. Now we have, now we have this on the internet. 
We have www.lessonsintanya.com. You can listen to this 24-6 at your leisure. Without commercial interruption. <laughs> Without commercial interruption. To be continued. Lessons in Tanya, taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. For more Tanya study, please visit our website at www.lessonsintanya.com.